I'm Sienna. I'm the kid. I'm Sarah. I'm the mom. This is Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. This week, we're talking to a couple of people who work at the LGBT resource centers at their colleges. We thought this would be a really interesting topic because of a whole variety of things that have been going on in the country and, you know, just getting an idea of what the experience is like working with queer students on campus, working with college administrations and the changing perspective and changing landscape of laws in the country and how they interact with those things. I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking today because my mother is in the, weirdly enough, the airport in the city where I live because she's flying to visit my brother, but we are in separate locations and I have better recording sound right now. So with that in mind, I'm going to have our two guests introduce themselves. If you two want to just share your name, pronouns, and if you're comfortable where you live and work. I'm Paige. I am the QRC coordinator at Rice University here in Houston, Texas. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a transgender girl. I'm also a drag queen. And that's basically all you need to know about me. My name is Irene. I'm in charge of QSA at the University of Pennsylvania. And my pronouns are she, her. All right. Thank you. So just to get things started, I'm going to ask each of you what led you to deciding to work at the QSA at your respective schools. Irene, why don't you go ahead and start? I honestly didn't put a lot of thought into why I wanted to. I applied to a board position for QSA my freshman year because I had just come out and I was living at home and my parents aren't very accepting. And so I applied because I really wanted to get to have a sense of the queer community my freshman year while I was still at home. Right. If I recall correctly, you were basically just joining any and all queer organizations that were doing anything online. (laughs) That's not exactly true. (laughs) I joined the two that I thought were least intimidating. Okay. And QSA was one of them. All right. And how about you, Paige? It's actually kind of weird. So Rice Pride on campus is pretty much our only like queer organization on campus. And most of my freshman year, I wasn't very involved. So when I was exploring my identity and like what it meant to be a queer person in America, a lot of that was actually not at all involved in the college campus culture. It was more like going to gay clubs or drag shows or stuff like that. And then only this summer did I kind of switch gears and decide maybe I could find other queer people on campus and make friends with them. So I got started basically during the summer and somehow became the coordinator for our queer resource center, which is a little intimidating. You know, that kind of seems to be how it goes is you get involved and then you just like, oh, well, I guess I'm in charge now. Actually, that brings up kind of an interesting concept because obviously you two are living in very different climates when it comes to just like politics and how many organizations there are on campus, for instance. So could you each maybe talk a little bit, just expand upon that? Like what's what's the climate like for queer people at your school? Paige, why don't you start? I don't know. When I came to Texas, my assumption was going to be that queer people were not a very represented or supported group anywhere in my school or off campus. And what I kind of forgot was that I was moving to the fourth largest city in the U.S. And so queer people actually, there's a lot of them. And that's no exception at Rice. So there's a lot of people, but our actual institutional support and organizations are kind of just Rice Pride right now, which is basically Rice's QSA. Recently, Texas passed a law that decided they would halt funding to public universities 
if they had queer resource centers or organizations supported by their universities that support queer students. So we actually opened up our doors to a bunch of people off campus. So anyone from any other university in Texas is welcome at the Rice Queer Resource Center. And so the Rice queer community isn't just Rice students anymore. And the Rice community isn't just straight people. So it's very interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's really cool. And how about you, Irene? I think it's pretty different from yours, Paige. I think the city that I'm in, Philadelphia, is pretty queer friendly, as well as Penn. So UPenn was ranked one of the best colleges for queer students. And we have a lot of queer clubs. So I think administratively, there are maybe two organizations that are in charge of connecting just smaller queer clubs with administration and funding opportunities. We have the LGBT Center. And then beyond that, there's just a lot of diverse queer clubs. So we not only have QSA, we have Queer and Asian, which is a group for queer and Asian students. We also have J-Bagel, which is a club for queer and Jewish students. And I think a queer and Christian group and a queer and Chinese group. So there are a lot. And so because of that, I think each individual group is pretty small. But in terms of finding a queer community, it's very easy. And then the city itself, there are a lot of small queer nonprofits, I think, that are focused on just creating community. So for example, there's a queer climbing group. There's a queer clay working group. I'm not sure what to call that, but there are a lot. With your involvement in these groups at colleges, are you finding that it's pretty common among students to kind of come out in college and not be out at home yet for one thing? And then what are you finding that experience is like? Is it liberating? Is it stressful? Is it all of those things? I can go first. So I host office hours here in the Queer Resource Center, which is, it just basically means I sit behind the desk and I'm trained so people can come ask questions or seek advice or look for resources or just grab a condom and leave. And one time, actually several times people have come out to me, but recently another student came out to me as a trans woman and she's already in her like junior year of college. So it's very much a thing that I've seen where a lot of people like to come out later in life than high school. I will say there's a lot of people in our generation that are already out by the time they get to college, which is great. And those people get a lot out of our community, but the people that haven't had the chance to be out before and are kind of starting fresh and maybe aren't out in their hometown or with their home family, I think get the most from what we're offering, which is really cool. Yeah, I agree with that. I think especially last year, most of the people in charge of QSA were out at Penn, but not to their parents. And it's the same for a lot of my other friends, as well as the people who come to our events. And so because of that, we have to be really careful with posting pictures and making sure that they're okay with being on our Instagram and making sure that everyone's safe. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I You, you started to say that and I was like, Oh, yeah, because that's, you know, that's something we have to think about at Pride House, the nonprofit that me and mom kind of started and Irene, you work with. Yeah, it's, you know, running the social media for that. Not only do you have to think about the level of like, okay, we have to get parental permission to post pictures. But then, you know, there's that added level of how do you make sure that you're keeping everyone involved safe, especially when you're dealing with minors. 
Um, I guess that raises the question for me, like, just like, what's, what's your procedure for dealing with that? You know, do you ask people specifically for the pictures? Do you have to do like a waiver situation? How do you go about that? So what we do at Rice, we've actually had a lot of problems with this in the past, not from Rice Pride personally, but like a lot of university advertising likes to advertise queer students and they don't really do that with the queer students permission. So like photos of us at Pride parades or stuff like that end up on the main Rice University Instagram and then parents will see it. So what we've done is when we have events, we have people wear different colors of lanyards to denote whether they are or are not comfortable being in a photo. And if the photographer has photos of people with red lanyards on, they delete those photos and they kind of know in the moment, okay, we should be taking photos of people that do not have the red lanyards. What has been an issue is we have some queer group chats for different identities, different intersectional identities, and then just the general Rice Pride group chat. And recently, somehow screenshots of those group chats ended up on the parent group Facebook page. Luckily, no one that was talking in the parts of the group chat that got screenshotted was outed. Someone had a very close call, but basically was able to get the post taken down in time. But it's definitely something that is one of our bigger concerns and that we're always trying to be vigilant about. Yeah, wow. That's yikes. But I do really like that approach with the lanyards. That's a very good idea. And I don't think I don't think I've seen that before. So yeah, I really like that. Thank you. I guess our procedure is a lot more informal. Um, we tend not to take pictures of anyone, or if we do, we usually leave out their face. And in the event that we do have more events that are open to everyone. So for example, we host a drag show for our school each year. We usually only take pictures of the people who are in charge of queer groups, as well as the performers. And beforehand, we usually ask them if they want to be in the pictures. And afterwards, the student news groups who usually take these pictures, they usually send them back to us to make sure that we're okay with it. I think it's definitely a lot more informal and at least for QSA it's worked out pretty well. I know that for one of our other queer groups there has been a case where someone was outed because of a photo. Have you had any run into any of the problems that Paige was talking about with the administration not necessarily being or like the uh, other social media accounts not necessarily being super cognizant of that? Not really. I think everyone who we've interacted with so far, which is really just our school news groups, as well as the photographers for Penn's Facebook and Instagram. They've usually asked people beforehand if they're okay with being in photos or videos. I think because such a large population of our student body is queer, they're very cognizant of what that means. So if kids, and this is going to be one of my like parent angle questions, if kids decide that they they do want to come out to their parents when they're in college. Like they explore this identity and they're like, this is who I am. I'm happy. I feel like I should tell my parents just from what you've witnessed. If people come and talk to you about that experience, what would you say is the most successful way a parent can respond to that? And maybe absolutely what not to say. Yeah. Wow, that's a difficult question, just because there's so many possible reactions people can have to coming out or to have someone come out to you. I think the most important thing that parents should really keep in mind when their kid comes out, especially if they're not in the same region or space as their kid, is to like acknowledge that while it may be surprising or startling for the parent, it is a thousand times less comfortable and harder for the student to make that announcement and talk to their parents about it 
especially if it's something that they've only been figuring out once they're away from the home. And so what parents should really keep in mind, at least in my opinion, is just to react first with support and trying to comfort their student. It shouldn't be an interrogation or trying to figure out exactly what their student is or asking them for more information than they're comfortable giving, but really just making their student feel comfortable in this moment of discomfort and vulnerability. Yeah, this is what the internet is for. If you're confused about something, like go Google it. Don't make your kid who's trying to be vulnerable, but also set boundaries feel uncomfortable because you are curious. That's, you know, that's not, that's not your position as a parent in my opinion. That's why, that's why we're doing this so we can <laughs> get these things out there. So I think all of you said it pretty well. Personally, I don't have a lot of experience with what a parent should say. And I know that since there are so many different queer groups, that's not something that people usually come to us about. One of the things I've seen a lot of students come to me about is like their fears either of being outed or before coming out to their parents. And so this isn't necessarily hearing what parents should do right, but more what students that are thinking about coming out or are scared that they might end up being outed have expressed to me. But I think the biggest thing is people are afraid that it's going to change either the relationship they have with their family or typically if the family is much less accepting, they're much more afraid of how that's going to jeopardize their experience at their college. So if their parents are paying for part of or even all of their college, they might be really afraid of the financial relationship that they have with their parent because it's not just a family member, but it's someone they depend on. And so I think like the most important things a parent can say even before their kid comes out First off, don't speculate on your kids. But if you do speculate, make sure that your kid knows that you love them no matter what. That doesn't just even go for queerness, but especially in college, as kids are finding themselves and deciding what their interests are and how they're going to spend their lives and really testing the limits of what they can do outside the nest. It's just really important to know that like you're there to support them and not there to hurt them. To me, I guess a really helpful way of sort of just indicating support without, you know, making making anyone feel weird or be like coming across as overbearing can just be like if you're talking about future relationships, just saying it in a in a really neutral way or just making sure that when you talk about things that might involve sexual orientation or gender identity, that you're doing it in a really neutral way that makes it clear that whatever your kid does end up doing, whether that's a relationship with someone of the same gender, a different gender, not having any relationships, that all of those are completely acceptable because that can make the process of coming out a lot easier, I think. Also, something I think that you kind of touched on, Irene, is just like that there are so many different organizations that's helpful because there are also different experiences depending on your family's cultural background. And so I think having those having those different organizations can probably be really helpful for some students in the experience of, well, I'm trying to come out to a family who's Jewish. I'm trying to come out to a family from a traditional Chinese background. Yeah, I think I think it's cool that there are so many different ways of finding support because those are distinct experiences. Yeah, something that I found really helpful when coming to Penn was our queer and Asian group. I think with a lot of the other queer people I met before I came here, they weren't Asian. And so we had very distinctly different experiences with coming out to our parents or not coming out to our parents. And so it was really, really nice to find a group of people who had the same problems as me and very similar experiences. 
that's that's really cool. Yeah, that I can see how that would be really helpful to have somebody that can share some of those cultural effects that their families are reacting within. How about safety for for parents who we know our kids out and is on a college campus? What are some of the things that you have seen come up as far as queer kids feeling safe, accepted, all of those things? I know it's just easy for parents to get scared, especially when you're always hearing about like, oh, there was a bomb threat there and there was this and violence against LGBTQ people and what is the day-to-day reality as you guys see it on your college campuses? And are there things that you can tell parents to alleviate their fears a little bit? Or are there things that you just think they should be aware of? Irene, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, I guess in terms of our queer student groups, especially last year, weren't there a few threats to queer people at different schools? And so... Those happened, I think, a week before we were going to have a queer week at our school, which is where a lot of our student groups host activities for queer students. And so because of that, especially for our drag show, and I think another group was hosting a discussion about transness, we were really concerned about safety. And because of that, our LGBT center, as well as our administration, worked with us to handle security for the event and to make sure that everything was okay. And thankfully, nothing happened. But when we were thinking about security for those two events, I think one of the things that we were really cautious of was making sure that people were safe, but also making sure that while we had security and police presence there, they weren't overbearing or overly present. Because I know that a lot of the queer community maybe doesn't have as great of a relationship with the police. And so that was one of the considerations that we took into account. And we also wanted to be really careful about making sure that we knew who was going to the events, but also making sure that we kept that information secure and safe. Because historically, that's also been a problem, not at Penn, just history in general. And I think that was the main thing. I think the environment at Penn is generally safe for queer people. I think there are a few times during the school year where a very aggressive Christian group comes to campus to tell people that queer people are bad. And they have a very loud presence in the few two or three times that they're here. But I think people are comfortable enough that we usually either ignore them or there are a lot of times where queer students go in front of them and they make out or things like that. So even though they're there, it's really nice to know that people feel safe enough and they know that if they do that, our police and our security, as well as other students, are going to have their back. I think at Rice, it's probably a lot different. Houston is the, I think, third most fatal location in the United States for trans women, which is a little scary being one of them. But because of that, I've looked into a lot of the different safety protocols, both on my campus and around Houston. Uh, Just like generally what it's like for safety as a queer student in the U.S. right now. And what I've generally seen is that the safest place for any queer person in America right now is on a college campus. And that should be something that everyone keeps in mind. You're never going to see generational demographics like a college campus outside of a college campus. And you're also never going to see as much 
queer support as there is in these younger generations. So it's it's very, very lucky and safe on a college campus, especially because these universities tend to have enough funding to do a pretty good job at having safety resources available. So at least as far as hate crimes go, I know they're horrifying and scary and they still can happen anywhere. But the safest place for your kid is around kids their own age. And I think that's really important to remember. There's a ton of other safety risks that happen being queer in the U.S. or being queer in college, whether that's sexual health or drug use or all sorts of stuff like that, and all sorts of emotional health safety issues as well. And I think those are important to be aware of, but those also happen to anyone our age. And I think that just promoting good support networks and fostering communication between yourself and your kid generally are the best things you can do to help in those areas as well. That kind of made me think of then two sort of tensions, I guess, that you have to navigate, both of which I think were kind of touched on by Irene. If you two could just expand on them a little bit. First, I guess, the tension between having an event and wanting to go forward with the event and show that, you know, we're not going to stop existing because people are being awful and threatening, but also keeping people's safety in mind and making sure that you're not putting anyone in unnecessary danger. And then also, yeah, that that tension between promoting safety at events and also recognizing the historically negative relationships that a lot of queer people, especially queer people of color, have with the police and the fact that police and security can be their own safety risk to a lot of people. So I guess those two dynamics, how do you go about navigating them? I can speak to that personally, because this year when we were training our QRC hosts, Uh, We had to think a lot about crisis management and the role that our university's police department was going to play in that. Houston police department is terrible, like just flat out awful garbage um, and like awful to trans people and queer people, especially. Rice's police department doesn't have that same reputation, but it still does make a lot of people feel less safe than if their presence wasn't there at all. For example, if every single time I've had to interact with the police before I legally changed my name, when they were taking statements, they wouldn't accept my preferred name. And I've been stopped before for walking around on campus at night, which I know cis people don't have happened the way it happens to queer people and trans people. And so like, at least for us, we spent a lot of time looking at how we can ensure our safety without the cops or when we need the cops, how they can play a less present role than another organization might typically ask them to. And it turns out there's a lot of different safety networks in the Houston area and especially at Rice that we can rely on, whether that's crisis responders, EMS teams, people at different institutional offices, like Rice has a safe office that is really good at responding to Title IX and assault violations. And we tend to stay in contact with them for pretty much everything. We want to have as good a working relationship with them as possible. And then, I don't know, in terms of just like generally making sure our events are safe, the biggest things that we can do is prevent outing, prevent anything from being brought into the event that could cause people danger, and just being aware of what's going on in our community and with the people we're around. And so like, especially as Rice changed from like, Rice Pride is exclusively for students that have Rice IDs to now any college student in Texas. It's been hard to kind of make sure that we're keeping our students safe and that like when someone walks into the building that we don't recognize that we can support them and not make them feel excluded while also maintaining a degree of safety and security 
it's honestly something that we're still trying to figure out all the answers to. But I think what's important to remember is most events that anyone puts on, safety is one of the utmost concerns they have going into it and something that they've thought about a lot. I guess we were really lucky when we were looking for security. Our LGBTQ center director, or maybe he's assistant director, but he knew a lot of people who work security for Penn. And so he suggested that we find someone who was also queer or who was really aware of the issues that queer people might have with security being there. In addition to that, some of the alternatives that we've looked at instead of security is Penn has a form that we can fill out where you can ask administration for a professor or someone else who has some kind of authority to attend your event and make sure that nothing bad happens. They're really just there to intervene if people are really rude or things like that. But I know that when we've had events with performers that we're less worried about in terms of security, that's who we've had instead. So do you like contract external security then? Is that how that works? We have to pay them when we get actual security, but the security there are still people who work for the school. Um, I don't remember how much it was last year, but we had to apply for a grant in order to pay them. And I think our school also paid for half, maybe. I found a few resources that I'll post to our website. But one that I thought was interesting, it was from the Higher Education Today, the journal, LGBTQ students on campus, issues and opportunities for higher education leaders. And so in this article, they identified the core values higher education leaders need to focus on for LGBTQ plus college kids are identity development. So being able to explore your identity, meet other LGBTQ people and build community. And the second one is campus climate. This kind of tracks with what what you said, Paige. Um, Most college students say their feelings of belonging, safety and inclusion are better in college than they were in high school. Um, Obviously, this isn't consistent across all college campuses, but the climate's very important. And then the third one is state and national social policy context. You guys all know this, but there are no federal laws that protect students and employees against discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, although some states have some in-state law. So conclusions in this article, I always do this. I start getting all like info-y and academic, but Bear with me. Their conclusion was institutions should create and maintain policies that ensure inclusion and prohibit discrimination without waiting for government mandates. That this is something that, like all college administrations, need to be focused on. And then I, like I said, I'll post it to the website because there's some really good guidelines on how to do that. My question for you guys is how well do you think your colleges are doing with those things? Do you see that being a priority for the administration? And I have a feeling that it's going to be a little bit different based on your schools. Is the administration doing things that you feel are working toward those goals or creating a good campus climate for LGBTQ? And what could they do better? I can go first if you want. I feel like it would be very easy to like say that rice is great for queer students or that rice is terrible for queer students, but it's kind of like somewhere in the middle of that. I think it's great to be a queer student here, especially because Rice has a very cool culture where most of the policies are determined by student government and most of your day-to-day life is determined in a way that you have a lot of authority and power as a student, which is really cool. But institution-wide, 
I wouldn't say that Rice is the best at supporting queer people. There's some institutions that are really good. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion office is really good. Our student success initiative is really, really good for queer people. And there's some other institutions that are not very good. So finance has dead named every single trans person I know at one point or another. I'm trying to think of other examples of this. I know housing hasn't been the easiest for all trans people. I actually had a very easy time with housing, so it might be getting better. There's been issues, like I mentioned earlier, with university advertisement, trying to almost take advantage of the queer communities that students have built here to post and advertise about Rice. So they have stats about how good it is to be queer at Rice compared to other colleges. They have photos of all of us, but like they didn't ask our consent for those photos or stuff like that. So it can get like a little dicey and there's a lot of room for them to improve. I think the biggest things that they're trying to work on right now are making sure that trans students feel especially represented and respected in the Rice community. And other than that, they're giving us a lot of room to kind of run with our own programs. So the Queer Resource Center that I work at and coordinate at is entirely student run, which is fantastic. It means that if we want to have plan B or prep or that sort of stuff, very accessible for our students, we don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that done. But it also means that we don't have the financial support of an institution that might hire someone full-time to work on queer rights or something like that. So there's work to be done and there's some really strong advantages to being queer rights that I really like. It's always finance every single time. Finance yeah. is always the Finance one. and parking. Parking for some reason is so behind <laughs> on like not dead naming students. It's very weird. Weird, yeah. Irene, what can you add about Penn? I think I agree with what you said about it being a mixed bag. I think Penn has definitely done a lot of things that have been helpful. For example, you were talking about how funding is sometimes an issue because your LGBT center is student run. I think because we have people working at our LGBT center who aren't students, as well as student workers there, they're able to obtain a lot of funding for us. In addition to that, I think administration has done a pretty good job of making sure that there are queer student voices as well as queer voices who are adults at the university like professors or directors when they make any new policies. I know that our previous LGBT center director is currently director of equity and inclusion. And so because of that, we don't usually have any trouble with funding or advertising or anything else in terms of running student clubs. I think the only problem I can think of so far is we sometimes have problems with housing. Penn has gender inclusive housing, but I know that a few of the trans people I've talked to said that they didn't really want to be in gender inclusive housing because they specifically wanted to be in a room with people of their gender, but that was their only option. And so because Penn also requires us to stay for the first two years on campus, it was really a problem for them in terms of finding roommates. I think other than that, we have a problem with just a lack of bathrooms in general, but the bathrooms that are available are usually gender neutral. And our professors are also really good about making sure that when people introduce themselves at the beginning of the semester, they give their pronouns and their name. So with the housing, is it like it's all is it is it all gender inclusive or it's like if you're trans, you sort of get funneled into gender inclusive housing? 
if you're trans, you sort of get funneled in there. Well, that's kind of rubbish. I think you do have the option of going with your assigned sex, but I don't think that's something that most people want to do. Yeah. Hmm. And it would also be a problem with like bathrooms. I think the dorm that I stayed in was co-ed, so it wasn't a problem. But if you like had chosen specifically one of them, you wouldn't have a bathroom to go to. We had a similar problem because a lot of our dorms are built with communal bathrooms. Some of them aren't, which is really lucky. But we don't have the same housing problems because our freshman housing is assigned by older students that are in charge of orientation week. Mm -hmm. And then your older years, you pick your roommates uh, and it's all co-ed. But the bathrooms, especially for bathrooms and dorms, is a huge problem that people are still working through. I don't envy college administrations trying to sort through all of this stuff. It'll take some time to work out, I guess. I think the dorms here have pretty much almost entirely transition to like bathrooms that you just share with a few other people as opposed to like sort of, you know, floor bathrooms, which, yeah, I hadn't really processed through that. But yeah, it's really helpful for that element because you don't have to worry about is there a gender neutral bathroom? Are people able to use the bathroom that they identify with? It's just like, yeah, I share my bathroom with my roommates and that's that. I think something interesting also is that, and this actually will lead me into another question, but A lot of times people tend to be either my school is amazing and can do no wrong and I love them and yeah, alma mater or whatever, or I hate the school and everything they do is terrible. And I think, you know, for me, I I have been pretty happy with the way the University of Utah has handled a lot of LGBTQ stuff as well as a lot of other issues. But, you know, to me, the feeling that I can advocate for something and say, hey, you all could be doing better on this. This is something that would help students. This is something that could be improved is a way of expressing, you know, I think that you're interested in my opinion. I think that you are willing to make changes. And so, yeah, that's that's just kind of dynamic is always interesting to me. But have you experienced that same thing of like, I've noticed that a lot of queer people are maybe not super trusting fairly of institutions, completely understandable. Have you experienced queer students who might not be comfortable with campus institutions who would prefer to go off campus? And how does that play out for you? Not just with dorms, but more just like not trusting the institution as a whole and maybe not wanting to be involved with the queer community on campus and would prefer to go off campus. So I currently live off campus, not by choice. Rice guarantees three years of housing and I drew the short straw on which one of those fourth years it would be. But it's definitely really interesting. I think as far as housing goes, our institution is pretty good at sending trans kids to the new dorms that have bathrooms in the dorm, like in each room, which is really nice. Very convenient for me. Uh, But off campus, I think students can generally find a pretty good environment outside of the Rice community. So like in the neighborhood north of Rice, there's a place called Tony's Place that is like a queer resource building that's specifically for queer youth. They do a lot of really good work with housing. There's also the Montrose Project, which is also over there. And they also do a lot of good work with housing. So there's a lot of kind of self-sufficient community organizations for everyone in the Houston area that Rice students can and do often take advantage of. And I think that's completely reasonable because sometimes it is like, yeah, my college sucks. But I think there's also a lot of stuff within, Rice has, our boundaries are called the hedges. So within the hedges, I think there's also a lot of stuff that students can look to that aren't as institutionally interdependent, which is really cool. Yeah, that's great. 
How about you, Irene? I guess in terms of maybe organizations that would help you with housing, I know that there are a few in Center City. So the area in Philly I'm in is called University City. And then you cross a bridge and then you get to Center City, which is basically the rest of the city, minus all of the universities. In terms of queer resources that would help you off campus, I think other than the social ones, there aren't really many. I think it's assumed that Drexel and Penn students are going to be pretty wealthy and as a result, probably won't need financial assistance, which isn't always the case. I think people that we've always been able to reach out to have been our LGBT center directors. I'm not sure if other people would have the same problems, but it feels like even though they're in charge of our center and they also have connections with administration, it doesn't feel like you're interacting with administration when you're you're talking to them, if that makes sense. And so a lot of the times, if you're having problems with maybe your roommate or just housing problems in general, they're able to figure something out. I think one of my friends had a problem with her meal plan where the cafeteria was making her sick, but none of our dorms have a kitchen and we're also required to be on the meal plan. And so they figured something out for her. Yeah, that actually, it sounds, it's, I guess it's a nice avenue. It doesn't just have to be like, I'm having a problem related to queerness. It can be, help the cafeteria is making me sick. What do I do? Yeah, they're really nice. We've gone to them about problems like that. And also we've like gone to them when we've just had like other problems. Like I asked them what to do when my computer broke. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Okay. I think that's the stuff that I wanted to cover in the interview. So is there anything either of you want to add or I think one thing that I've noticed a lot of after this Texas law passed and our queer resource center became less about our college and more about like the general Houston and Texas community. One thing that like, really, really sticks out to me about that is the amount of community networks that are accessible to everyone and that are not at a university, but that university students should absolutely have on their radars, especially when it comes to like, healthcare, STD testing, and just general like community building and space making. There's a lot of really, really good resources in every city. So if any listeners are in Houston, definitely mm-hmm. check out like the Normal Anomaly Project, the Lesbian Health Initiative, and Trans Latina. Those are all really good organizations. But yeah, just look up what's in your area. It doesn't have to be at your school to be good. Yeah. Would you be willing to send me those links just so that I can get them for the website? Yeah. Sweet. Thank you. Irene, anything else? Not really. I guess it's the same as Paige. We also have a lot of resources. I think the problem for us is just that for the most part, they're kind of far away. For example, our city has a queer and Asian group as well, and we have several LGBT centers. Yeah, too bad Philadelphia is kind of a nightmare to navigate. Penn, get your students' public transportation cards, please. (laughs) You don't want to have public transportation cards? No, public transportation is a really big pain. None of us drive because there's no parking. And if you do get parking, our cars get broken into a lot. And then there's a trolley and a bus system. But sometimes they don't run and they don't tell you. They also break down a lot because they're really old. There are signs on some of the trolleys that say, don't worry, our 
Carly was updated in 1987. <laughs> oh, girl, no. <laughs> <laughs> Two of my favorite stories from when I visited are one, one time we were in one of the trolley stations underground and we like walk in and there's no one else in there. And, you know, there, there are kind of the zombie apocalypse trolley stations, right, where it's all like gross tile and you're like, OK, OK, sure. And then the PA comes on, like, presumably saying when the next trolley will arrive or something. And it's like, this warped demon voice. and like, terrifying. <laughs> you not understand anything. Wild. And then the other one, we were like, yeah, we can take the bus. It's fine. And then we go to the bus stop. And the first bus just drives by us. And we're like, okay, maybe they didn't see us. Whatever. We'll wait for the next one. But then the next bus pulls over, opens the door for about two seconds, and then drives <laughs> At which point we're like, we're just going to take an Uber, I guess. That's crazy. Yeah, Houston's not known for our public transportation, but it's a little better than that. I think you can get to most of the good queer resources through the Houston Metro. Legacy Community Health, I know, always builds their locations next to Metro stops. It's definitely not that bad. So that's crazy. (laughs) Um, Navigating a city is definitely one of the like bigger barriers when it comes to any resource at all, like food deserts or that sort of stuff. Yeah. But especially for queer people, yeah, public transportation is really important. Yeah, the way it is in Salt Lake is it's it's pretty good if you're going anywhere, you know, downtown, Salt Lake area, um, kind of the core of the city, which is good because it happens to let you get to, you know, like the queer bookstores, the Pride Center, the uh, what's it called? I forget the name of the house, but there's um, like a house that basically just like does all sorts of programming and events and stuff. So all of that is pretty accessible. Um, But as soon as you get outside of the like you get to West Salt Lake and South Salt Lake, which are kind of the less wealthy, um, predominantly people of color, as soon as you get into those areas, yeah, everything it's it's much harder, which Of course, those are the areas that need public transportation the most, so it's very frustrating in that sense. Anyway, thank you guys so much for coming. This was really great, and I appreciate your time, and you had so many awesome, you know, great information, and it's, it's really cool to be able to kind of contrast your experiences. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Something to check out is we are going to start having recorded stories, primarily LGBTQ historical stories from all over the world, ideally. Some poetry, some short stories that I will be recording from the Creative Commons and then having put up on the Patreon. So the first one of those we will put on the feed so that you can see what it's going to look like, the kind of thing that you can expect. And then after that, they will be Patreon only. So if you are interested in checking some of those out, if you're interested in listening to my beautiful mellifluous voice, reading all kinds of bizarre historical queer stuff to you, please consider subscribing to Patreon. It would be really awesome and it would allow us to support this podcast, pay for Zoom so that we don't get kicked off meetings randomly, and you'll get some really fun, entertaining stories. To be honest... I really think that some of the most fun stories are the ones that aren't explicitly queer, but you read it and you're just like, this is gay. This is really gay. Anyway, so yeah, hopefully I will be bringing you some of those. And the one that is going to be on the public feed in the spirit of spooky season coming up, I will be reading 
The Striding Place, published in 1896 by Gertrude Atherton. I heard this story on a podcast recently and I listened to it and I was like, this is this is so gay. What is this? What is happening? So I hope you find it as entertaining as I did. Unfortunately, mom is not here to say bye to everyone. So that is everything from me. I hope to see you again next episode and on Instagram and on the Patreon. Bye. If you found this podcast helpful, interesting, or just mildly amusing, please consider rating and reviewing us on your podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out there and spread this information as far as we can. And as always, check out our website at QueerKidsStraightMom.com or visit us on Facebook, QueerKidsStraightMom, Instagram at QueerKid.StraightMom or Twitter at QueerKidSTR, the number eight mom. And if you're feeling especially generous, please consider joining our Patreon by searching Queer Kids Straight Mom. It helps us fund this podcast.